Let's hear it for those unofficial missions. everyone and welcome to season three episode 46 of the real spies real lives podcast this is where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies i'm your host espionage author p.a duncan last week i started my pre-publication marketing for Meeting the Enemy, Book Two, Revenge. I featured part one of Revenge, titled Arrows of God, and it focused on Alexei Bukharin's arrival in Afghanistan in October of 2001. But in part two, Unofficial Missions, I take up where book one left off, which was my Fisher parachuting into Afghanistan to meet up with a special forces group. But that starts with a little intrigue going on back in Washington, D.C. at the CIA, or at least at my version of the CIA. Recall that Mai is undercover in the CIA as Catherine Burke, chief of staff to the CIA director Boyd Waller. Also recall that the Vice President, Delbert Stodden, has taken an immediate dislike to her. When he hears that Waller has sent her as lead of a team of CIA paramilitaries, he's not happy, to say the least. The Opening chapter of part two is based on something that did happen to a boss of mine. My boss was summoned to a congressman's office, not to meet the congressman, but to meet with a staffer. And my boss was to brief the staffer, not the congressman, on the latest in an accident investigation. Now, generally... The legislative branch, Congress, can't compel the executive branch, us, to appear in a congressman or senator's office unless it's by mutual consent. They can invite, but the executive branch representative can refuse. Now, being summoned before a congressional committee or to a congressional hearing is a different matter. If you refuse that, you're subpoenaed, and if you ignore the subpoena, jail could be in your future, as we may soon see for a few people. My boss refused this informal meeting and instead said he'd clear some time on his calendar for the staffer to come to his office for an update. The staffer wasn't happy, but apparently somewhere along the line, protocol was explained to him, and he came. Now, a congressional representative or a senator generally selects their office staff 
administrative advisories and so forth from their campaign staff, whether that staff was paid or volunteer. Those people know the congressperson well, can keep the office running smoothly, one hopes. One thing I noticed in my 30-plus years of dealing with congressional staffers was that, unfortunately, the younger they were, the least experienced they were, the more the position went to their heads and they operated from position power rather than knowledge. And sometimes they tended to blur the line between themselves as staff and their boss, the actual congressperson. I had a staffer once tell me that talking to him was the same as if talking to the congressman. Um, no. The U.S. government is a hierarchy of three equal branches. Within those branches are departments, agencies, etc., each with its own hierarchy or pecking order. I'm not my boss. Speaking to me is not the same as speaking to him, except when he said so. And this was mostly to do internally with my tasking his subordinate managers with projects. Even then, as a woman, though I was equally qualified as they were, I had to walk a fine line of sometimes playing to their egos. Many were former airline or military pilots. Talk about hierarchy and position power. And in not being coy about it. Some women managers I knew did bat their eyelashes and use a simpering little me voice, but that wasn't my thing. I preferred mutual respect plus a bit of position power that is as my boss's chief of staff as needed. Sometimes I managed it really well, but sometimes I didn't. And sometimes my boss got a complaint that I should have smiled more. Oh, yeah. I'm grateful I had a male boss, a farmer, army NCO like my dad, who didn't take that shite. So the scene I'm going to read a bit from later in the podcast is based on my boss's conversation with this hapless young staffer who probably had a college diploma on which the ink was still drawing. I'd like to think the young man learned a valuable lesson in how to deal with people who dedicate their lives and their whole careers to public service. Hey, I can be optimistic. Now, I'm not painting all congressional staffers with that same brush. The vast majority of them were seasoned professionals who understood we had a job to do as well and appreciated our efforts in answering the questions they put to us. Most of the time, they did their research well before a hearing and didn't allow the Congress people to ask stupid questions like, why can't you make a rule that says airplanes aren't allowed to crash? Or, if an airplane taxis on the airport's surface, what does it call when it moves up in the air? 
um, flying. And that humiliated staffer then complained to my boss that I'd hurt her feelings. So the bad apples are few but memorable. And of course, being a writer, I can commemorate those bad apples in fiction forever. Really, that is the most absolute fun of being an author. It's very cathartic. The other thing I'm in the midst of in November is National Novel Writing Month. If you've never heard of this, it's a global exercise to write a 50,000-word rough draft of a novel in the 30 days of November. Taken in bits like a daily word count, it seems easy. 1,667 words a day for 30 days, and you have 50,010 words, and you win. There are no prizes or prize money or awards or the like, only the satisfaction of completing a task, plus the camaraderie of joining other writers in this task. Indeed, most of my published books started out as NaNoWriMo rough drafts, and I've met a lot of writer friends through our in-person write-ins for my region. It costs you nothing except blood, sweat, and tears. Just kidding. It's simply fun to do with writer friends, and it is a challenge. I love a challenge. This year is my 15th year, and I now have a decent-sized backlog of rough drafts that will keep me publishing for several more years. After learning that I do NaNoWriMo, some of my readers, dare I call them fans, have emailed me with suggestions that I should write about. Interestingly, it's mostly requests for books about secondary characters, like Olga Lubova, the au pair bodyguard for Alexei Bukharin's granddaughter when she was younger, or, interestingly, My Fisher's Mother. That one I really liked because I had to create backstory from scratch for a character who was only ever mentioned in passing because she and Mai's father were killed when Mai was five. The suggestion for this year was Grace Lydell, the head of analysis for The Directorate, my fictional UN spy shop. I have included hints of her backstory throughout several novels, but nothing comprehensive. Once again, I had to think about what kind of person would dedicate her life to intelligence analysis, what would she have to give up for such a career, and so on. The challenge, however, is to make a character and a story interesting enough to keep the pages turning when there's very little action involved. She's an analyst. She works in an office. She doesn't get involved with the nitty-gritty of an operation. The other challenge was 
keeping in mind that my main characters have to take a back seat to who has been a secondary character. But, but seeing your main characters through someone else's eyes, a secondary character's eyes, is an exercise that can teach you something about your characters that you didn't know, and you thought you knew them better than anyone else. I likened it to a Pride and Prejudice follow-up novel that came out a few years back. It was basically Pride and Prejudice, but as seen through the eyes of the Bennett family's servants. If you remember either the movie or the series, and Mrs. Bennett is continually calling for Hill, Hill, who was the housekeeper. So the housekeeper Hill is one of the characters in this book. And that novel is titled Longbourn, which was the name of the Bennett's estate. And it was written by Joe Baker. It's a very good read, very interesting. And again, the characters we loved, Elizabeth Bennett and her sisters, appear very differently when they're perceived through those secondary characters' eyes, particularly because they're the servants. So now, someday, you'll be able to read Grace Under Pressure, working title, and see how I did it. And now, it's commercial time. Revenge, book two of my series, Meeting the Enemy, is now available for pre-order for the reduced price of $1.99. That's for the ebook only. The Zon doesn't allow you to put hardcovers or paperbacks on pre-order, which is a shame. Revenge launches on December 24th. So that's a perfect time and a perfect price for holiday gift giving. But you should act now. On Christmas Day, it'll go back to its recommended retail price, which is still reasonable, but not as reasonable as two bucks. And while we're building up to the launch of Revenge, book one, Terror, is on sale. The ebook again also for $1.99. You could buy yourself or your friends both books. Terror will arrive on your or their Kindle right away. And you can be all caught up by the time Revenge comes along on December 24th. Both books are available at the same buy link, and I'll put that in the description for this episode. And... Commercial over. All right. It's time to read a little from part two of Revenge. I've already pretty much set it up earlier in the podcast, so here we go. Meeting the Enemy, Revenge, part two, unofficial missions. November 2nd, 2001. CIA Headquarters, Langley, Virginia. Boyd Waller stood before the painting he'd hung in every office he'd occupied in his political career. Congressman, Senator, 
White House Chief of Staff, National Security Advisor, and now CIA Director. He'd painted it himself from a picture someone had taken of him during his first tour in Vietnam. He stood alone in a field of high grass, a Huey in the background, and he stared at something in the distance. Improvised camouflage crowned his helmet, and he held his rifle pointed at the ground. For the life of him, he couldn't remember what had caught his attention, what he stared at with such intensity. But he'd carried the photo in his wallet until it disintegrated. Missing the comfort it gave him, he'd done the painting from memory. This painting reminded him, at all times, no matter how many people worked for or supported him, he always stood alone. When he needed someone to rely on, he could only count on himself. Because he was a carryover from the previous administration, he knew the ground he now stood on with the Arbust administration was as mine-filled as the fields he'd trod in Nam. The president personally seemed to like Waller. When Waller had been a freshman congressman, the president's father, Gordon Sr., had taken Waller under his tutelage, made him CIA chief of staff when Gordon Sr. headed it, and still spoke highly of him, though they were of different political parties. Gordon Jr. was a bit obsessed about pleasing Daddy, and Daddy wouldn't like it if Jr. fired an old friend. However, that would only take Waller so far. Winston Everett had called Lillian Massey, Waller's executive assistant, and requested that Waller come to see Everett in the old executive office building right away. Working at the White House did the strangest things to a mid-level case officer's sense of importance. Waller had told Lillian, "'Tell Mr. Everett I'll see him in my office at his earliest convenience.' Lillian's proud smile had bolstered him the rest of the day. What had Waller been looking at that day in Vietnam? Nothing important, or he would have remembered, surely. Waller's private line buzzed, and he picked up the receiver. Yes? Mr. Everett has checked in at the gate. Fifteen minutes early, Lillian told him. I see. When he gets here, have him wait a half hour. Here on his stomping grounds, Waller had all the power stacked on his side, and the extra weight would remind Everett of that. Waller looked at the painting again. In some ways, he'd never stopped being that soldier. He nodded to the young man he'd been, sat at his desk, and read reports until Lillian admitted, case officer, Winston Everett. In a crisp and expensive blue three-piece suit and red power tie, Winston Everett looked every inch a man of importance, even if it were in his own mind. Boyd Waller had shed his jacket, loosened his collar and tie, and rolled up his shirt sleeves while he sat behind his desk. Stacks of folders surrounded him, and he pretended to be in deep study, 
reading glasses perched on his nose. Not looking up, he said, Good morning, Winston. Have a seat. I'll be with you in a second. Everett sat in a chair across from Waller's desk while Waller continued reviewing the file. Long enough for Everett to fidget. Waller closed the file and set it aside. How are you, Winston? Waller asked, his smile indulgent. Fine, director. Everett made a show of glancing at his Breitling watch. Well, we're both doing the power play thing, Waller thought, knowing he'd win. With a scowl, Everett said, Director, I have pressing duties at the White House. Waller was tempted to ask if Everett were ironing Stodden's shirts, but he controlled himself. And I don't see why you couldn't come to D.C. rather than my having to come all the way out here. Waller leaned back in his chair, rocking it a little. I had my reasons, Winston. And they are? Well, one, you haven't been here in a while, and I thought maybe you might like to say hi to your friends. Everett flushed and looked away. No? I see. Primarily, I wanted you to remember where you work and who you work for. Everett's smile was a degree short of shitty. I work at the White House for the vice president. No, you work for the CIA. We pay you. You're assigned to the White House because your father cut a deal with Delbert Stodden, who tapped you for his liaison position over quite a few more senior officers. I seen a reason to bring my father. And finally, you seem to have forgotten this key element. I don't work for you. You don't summon me to your cubicle. Waller held up a hand for silence whenever it opened his mouth. No, you're listening right now, not talking. I work for the President of the United States. And he is the only human being on Earth, except perhaps my wife when she was alive, who can pick up a phone, make me drop everything I'm doing, and report to any federal office building. Now, I'll concede, the vice president might be able to do that, but that would involve presidential incapacitation. The thing that does not happen, under any circumstances, is being summoned by a low-seniority case officer whose daddy has pull in the Republican Party. Understand? Everett flushed again and swallowed hard. I um, didn't mean for you to interpret my request that way, sir. It's when the vice president tells me to do something, I, well, you know. Yeah, he says shit, and you squat first and ask how much later. Now, what's so important you have to speak to me face to face? Everett fidgeted some more, his lips pinched tight. You sent your chief of staff into Afghanistan, he said, as the lead of a CIA paramilitary team. The vice president is not pleased Miss Burke is leading a CIA team. Indeed, he's not pleased she's in Afghanistan in any CIA capacity whatsoever. She uh, prefers Ms. Burke, by the way, 
Everett, I know you snooped around about her. Surely you garnered the extent of her experience. She has team lead experience in volatile situations. So putting her in charge of a team and sending her to Afghanistan makes me look like a fucking genius. Plus, I do get to make my own personnel decisions. The um, vice president feels you should have run it past him. Well, that's not a requirement. Much as when I selected her as my chief of staff, I discussed it with the president, and he concurred. I can send you the transcript of the discussion if you like. Everett's lips tightened more before he spoke. Why did you put her in charge of a team? Waller grinned. Why? Do you wish I'd picked you instead? Um, um, no, no, that's not what I meant at all. That's, that's not my area of expertise. Is it hers? Well, you tell me. Again, you looked into her background. Don't ignore my question. Answer me. If Everett were to purse his lips any tighter, his teeth would slice the inside of his mouth. It appears, Director, from my cursory examination of her operational record, that she is. Respectfully, the Vice President believes that her obvious disagreement with administration policy disqualifies her from, as my Chief of Staff, she is allowed to comment on policy. Indeed, it's part of her responsibility to point out if we're following policy into a shithole. So, what? She said what we needed to hear, not what the vice president wanted to hear. That is what a true public servant does in a democracy, Winston. Stodden may prefer to surround himself with yes-men, but I don't. The vice president wants her recalled. Immediately. Oh, not possible. She's in country with a specific job to do, the same as every other team leader in Afghanistan. And I anticipated this and discussed it with the president, and I have his full confidence. Understand? Assure the vice president she will execute the agency's mission precisely as ordered, the same as every other team. Now, Miss Burke has been in Afghanistan less than 24 hours, Allow her to accomplish something, and I'll make sure the president and the vice president get a full report. I can safely say that the vice president would like me to reiterate, you should have discussed this with him, director. Jesus, do Arbust and Stodden never communicate? I answer to the president. I apprised the president of my intention. I received the president's concurrence. With no record of that, again, Waller held up a hand. He picked up his phone and punched in two numbers. Lillian, please have someone make a copy of the transcript of my October 15th conversation with President Arbus and bring it in here, please. Thanks. The two men didn't speak while they waited. Fingers steepled. Waller studied Everett from behind slitted eyes. Everett looked everywhere except at Waller. Lillian came in and handed a folder to Everett. Anything else, Director? she asked. I doubt it. Thank you, Lillian. Everett opened the folder and skimmed the transcript. As he did, his face and shoulders slumped. 
Any further questions about my sending a qualified person to Afghanistan to do this administration's dirty work? Waller asked. Everett's head came up. Dirty work? Sir, the vice president and the president are protecting us from further attack. That's not dirty work. Winston, this is the CIA. We do every administration's dirty work. Besides, what did the president and vice president do when I tried to brief them about a threat from bin Laden a month before 9-11? Abso-fucking-lutely nothing. Oh, feel free to tell him I said that, or if he wishes, I'll say it to his face. Everett went as white as his starched shirt. Winston, I understand you're only the messenger because Stodden doesn't want to sully his manicure with the likes of me, but that doesn't mean I won't shoot the messenger. Figuratively, of course. Director, I'm only doing my job. You work here, Winston, and right now many of your co-workers are in a dangerous place, doing dangerous work and risking their lives while you sit in an ergonomic chair in the executive office building. Mindful of some of the things the soldier in the painting had done with little or no provocation, Waller counted to ten in silence. Mr. Everett, tell the vice president this. Catherine Burke will do her job with distinction. Waller picked up another folder and began to read. Moments later, he was alone. And that's enough for today. My boss, who inspired this scene, is no longer with us. So I'm happy to have immortalized his humanity and great example as a public servant. Next week is, of course, Thanksgiving week. So there will be no podcast next week. Repeat, no podcast on November 24th. And I'll actually be recovering from some outpatient surgery anyway, which means my kids are going to make Thanksgiving dinner and I get to sit back and supervise. I hope everyone has a safe and thankful Thanksgiving. But don't forget, even among your family, and perhaps because you are among your family, keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Again, the podcast will take off next week and return on December 1st. But still, stand with Ukraine.